0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Office Hours. I'm your host, Daniel Pink, broadcasting from Clean Cut's Miles Davis studio at Broadcast House in Washington, D.C. Thanks for being one of the tens of thousands of people around the world listening on the web or through iTunes. Now, we all have a pretty good sense of what it takes to succeed. At least some innate talent, lots of hard work, and yes, a little luck. Talent, work, And luck, that's the equation for success. T plus W plus L equals S. But today's guest, Adam Grant, says there's another variable that we've overlooked, our reciprocity style, how we negotiate our rich and complex interactions with others. Most of us, Grant says, are matchers. You do something for me, I do something for you. Some of us are takers. You do something for me, and, well, that's it. And some of us are givers. I do something for you without necessarily expecting anything in return. But who fares best, the givers, the takers, or the matchers? Adam Grant delivers the answer in his remarkable book, Give and Take. It was a huge bestseller and hardcover. Now it's out in paperback. Adam is the youngest tenured professor at Wharton, where he also happens to be the professor most highly rated by his students. Fortune magazine named him one of the 40 best business professors under 40. He publishes prolifically in both academic journals and the popular press. And guess what? He's also a giver. Adam Grant, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you, Dan. So
1: give and take, reciprocity. How do you settle on this topic? Well, I had a lot of students coming by, I guess, my office hours over the years, (laughs) and they would ask for career advice, Uh and usually they would say, my long-term goal is to try to help others and make a difference, so I'm going to try to accumulate as much wealth as I can for 35 years and then start giving back. And I just thought that was backward. Hmm. that, yeah, there are some people like Bill Gates who succeed first and then give back a lot. Right. But most of the successful people I knew were giving from day one. And it wasn't philanthropy or volunteering. It was just everyday acts of helping others. And Mm -hmm. I tried to convince my students that that was a path to success, and they thought I was crazy. And... And they said, no, there's
0: no way I'm going to be taken advantage of. What was their response to that?
1: Yeah, they were, they were afraid of the takers. Uh-huh. So they, they might be givers with their family members and their close friends. Right. But they walk in the workplace and say, no, 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 I've got to protect myself.
0: Right, right. And so, and how did you disabuse them of that? Well, I mean, because you do a good job in the book of not just saying in a kind of nicey-nice way. You actually make a, a pretty rigorous evidence-based argument for why givers with some caveats, why givers are the ones who fare best.
1: That was where I started. I didn't have as much evidence when those conversations were first going on. But as I compiled more data, at least some of the students started to get intrigued. And I think when somebody starts thinking that an idea is crazy and then moves toward, huh, that's interesting, I think there's a story to be told.
0: Interesting. So how did you go go about pursuing this then?
1: Well, in, in a lot of my research, I went into organizations and I tried to measure... Reciprocity styles. Uh, So in some studies, we had people rating each other on how many favors they did versus how many uh they got back.
0: uh
1: uh Uh, In other cases, you might report how much you like helping others, or in a given situation, what would you do? Would you try to get stuff? Would you try to help? Or would you try to trade evenly?
0: Okay, so, so it sounds like there are three different ways. One of them is essentially peer ratings. The other one is giving people a scenario and having them predict how they would behave. And... The third one is essentially your own, sort of self-reports on your attitude or something exactly, like that. Exactly, or on your values. And are any one of those more predictive of who someone really is?
1: Yeah, peer ratings turn out to be most accurate. Interesting. Uh, most people in self-ratings think they're givers. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I guess, I mean, this uh-huh. is just a, it's a bias, right? Yeah. We, we all think we're better than others in every way. Right, and this right. Is, this is one, of my, one
0: of my favorite questions is, is to go to a group of people. If you go to like a group of, say, 500 or more and, and say to people, how many of you think you're above average drivers? you get 90% of people saying that they're above average.
1: We get uh, less than 90% on the giver question, yeah. but still a lot more than there should be. Right. And uh, of course, every time somebody says, I'm a giver, my default rea- reaction is just to say, nope, you're a taker. Why is that? Because no, no true giver would go around sort of waving oh. a flag saying, look how generous I am.
0: Interesting, interesting. OK, so peer ratings give you a sense of, of whether people are givers or takers. Very much so. Um, and then um and so and then what do you do you take those ratings and then map it against some measures of success
1: yeah, Frank Flynn at Stanford did this beautifully in a study of engineers, where the engineers in groups of 10 all rated each other on you know, favors done versus favors received, and then he measured their productivity, how much work they got done, as well as the number of errors that they made. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you can see that the basically the givers are more likely to finish last, and they're also more likely to finish first.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So let's, let's, let's get to that. So the way that the success is distributed is that you see givers in overrepresented on the bottom of the, or sort of the, you know, on both sides of the distribution. So at the bottom and at the top, if we're going to have a vertical distribution now. So uh, how does, a, let's, let's take each one. How does a giver end up on the bottom? Make It's pretty easy, actually. Yeah. Just say yes to all the people, all the time, on all the requests. And so what happens is other people set your agenda, you get taken advantage of.
1: Yeah, so you're you're basically um, you're at the whim of takers, right? But also, there are just a lot of people who will learn that you're generous, and they'll ask you for things, not meaning to take advantage of you. Mm-hmm. But they have no idea how many other people are asking you for things. So right. Pretty soon, no good deed goes unpunished.
0: <laughs> okay, and yet, so that makes sense. I mean, because you have to be. I mean, I think all of us have, as you're suggesting earlier, kind of a self-protective instinct. Don't take advantage of me. You know, I want to be a decent person, but I don't want to be stepped all over. And so these people maybe don't have the checking mechanism, so they end up getting stepped on. But yet, on the other side of the spectrum, the super successful people, they're doing
1: well because they're givers. So what do they do that the people at the bottom don't? Yeah, that, that was a big surprise for me, uh, that the, the givers were overrepresented at both extremes. And when you compare successful givers to takers and matchers, you can find a, a series of advantages. Okay. Uh, one is that they build stronger relationships and reputations. All right. I think that's probably the most obvious reason that givers succeed. Uh, but interestingly, it turns out that the, the matchers are a really big engine of that. What do you mean? So matchers are basically the people who believe in an eye for an eye, a just Mm -hmm. world. What goes around comes around. Right. And when it doesn't, they feel like it's time for them to become the karma police. Oh, uh huh. I like that. That kind of works in both directions. uh So matchers hate seeing takers succeed. Uh, If you were a matcher and you see a taker win, you feel like it's just your mission in life to punish that person. Interesting.
0: Interesting. So you have basically the group enforcing these norms. Now, again, let's take a
1: step back here. Um matchers are the largest group. They are. And this this makes it tough for takers because you know, if, if you go and burn a bridge somewhere, mm-hmm. you can't just start over fresh in a new relationship because the matchers are the ones who are making sure that your reputation chases you.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so, so give us some, some, some specifics of how they actually how they actually do that, either from the research or from, from from anecdotes. Like like, you know, you're the you're the karma police, you're the karma cop on the beat. <laughs> <laughs> What do you, you've got your nightstick in your badge. What do you do?
1: Well, some I think the boldest matchers will directly try to undermine takers. Nice. Um, they'll feed them false information. They try to sabotage them. But most matchers choose a more subtle but equally deadly ancient weapon. Nice. Uh, which you know is called gossip. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, it usually works something like this. Okay. Don't trust this guy. Uh-huh. He's a selfish bastard. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, th- it's very specifically warnings about somebody having a history or a reputation for selfish behavior and, and right. telling people, you know, you've got to watch your back if you're going to trust this person. Right, right. Now,
0: give us a sense of how, as a social scientist, you collect the evidence of that. How, 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 do, you, how do you understand what is going on inside of organizations that these whisper gossip campaign is happening?
1: Well, I wish I had been smart enough to figure out how to do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Luckily, uh, Matthew Feinberg, Rob Willer, and a couple other social scientists uh, out in Northern California figured it out. So one of the things they did was uh, they, they brought people into the lab mm-hmm. and uh, they, they gave them a bunch of choices about whether they were going to basically share resources or selfishly claim them for themselves. Okay. Uh, and they, they made it especially bad because you're put in a situation where somebody has shared resources with you and then you have a chance to either reciprocate, be generous, or give them nothing back. Okay. And then they had some people basically planted who were just extreme takers and were given to you and then kept it all for themselves. And so then the question is, what do you do? Well, they bring in other people to interact with those takers. And first, you have a chance to write them a note. And uh, it turns out that something like 98% of people uh, were willing to write a direct warning saying, don't share your resources with this person. Interesting. Okay. So that's a fascinating
0: kind of social f- f- phenomenon. So, but do the givers act as
1: karma police or do they just disregard the takers? So I think a lot of it depends on where you are in your evolution of, of a giving philosophy. Interesting. Um, what I find in general is that most givers start out just underestimating takers. And they assume that everybody else is like them and they're willing to be generous. And then they get oh, burned un- a few un- times. Underestimating takers. Okay. So yeah. sort, of, sort of some degree of naivete. Yeah. Or just um, psychologists call it projection bias. That you know, I just I assume that everybody else shares my values, and my attitudes, and so you know, I, can, I can just count on other people to do right by me. And then they get they get taken advantage of, and a lot of givers then overcorrect and say i 'm only going to deal with other givers, ah. which is bad because you don 't have the mattress protecting you right if you do that right right so this
0: is, this is um, i mean it 's fascinating the way you describe this because it suggests you know I, you know i mean you 're a social scientist, and, and I think that a lot of times i mean you, and you know about obviously the fundamental attribution bias that we that we always kind of overweight personality characteristics and, and underweight context and environment. And what you're talking about here is, is essentially a kind of a, an ecosystem. I mean, it could be, we could be talking about um, dung beetles or slugs <laughs> or toucans in this kind of way that the community enforces its norms. Yeah, I, I really hate the taker dung beetles. <laughs>
1: They're the worst. <laughs>
0: but yeah, well, I, you, have the, you, have the, you have the karma police dung beetles, too, <laughs> who are brutal. So, um, but um, so does that suggest, though, that if it is that we are operating in this ecosystem, that do, do people change? That is, can a taker, if you let's say, can can someone be redeemed? Oh, I was a taker, but now I've seen the light and I've become a giver.
1: Yeah, I think what's neat about these styles is that we all have moments of giving, matching, and taking. Right. Right? Your, your style is how you treat most of the people most of the time right. in, a, in a given role or right. at work, right. uh, as, as I tend to look at it. But you know, like, think about the, the worst taker you know uh, who has children. It's not common that when a son or daughter says, I really need a ride to soccer practice today, that parent as a taker would say, you want a ride? What have you done for me lately? Because there, there's, right. so, there's some roles and some relationships sure. that bring out our giving instincts. Right. And so I think that what happens is if you really are dealing with a taker or you want to understand the conversion of one, um, you need to observe the fluctuations in their behavior and look right. at what are those moments where they are less cutthroat uh-huh. and what seems to bring that out in them? And then right. how do I bring that more into their, into their job or their interactions? Right, right. So but people
0: do change. They do change. And what about, um, I, I don't remember from the book, so forgive me for that, but is there, is there a change over time? that is is does someone's you know you know in their 20s just starting out i'm guessing maybe more of a of a taker more of a matcher and then over time as they experience life and they understand the world a little bit better they migrate toward
1: givingness you don't remember it from the book cuz i didn't write about it oh. but i should have <laughs> So I I think the the data seem to support that intuition. Uh. So um, Jean Twenge and her colleagues have uh, these studies showing that uh, millennials tend to be more narcissistic and entitled Mm. than other generations on record. And a lot of people look at that and say, well, this is bad news for generations. Mm -hmm. But it actually turns out that the age and development effect swamps the generation effect. So every generation is generation me. When they're, Got when they're kids. Got it. And as they mature and gain responsibility, they, mm-hmm. they basically become more concerned about other people. Mm-hmm. There's some uh, really neat data on this by Dan McAdams at your alma mater, Northwestern. Ooh. Uh, who uh, Who shows that uh, people get a you see a big spike in in generativity yeah. at midlife where um, it's a specific form of giving about helping future generations right
0: generativity uh, is more sort of you're concerned about your legacy and what you're leaving behind
1: yeah, and part of that is sort of I, I want to be remembered, but part of that is I really want the next generation to be better off than we were. And uh, what's interesting is right around midlife, people become much more motivated to give back to future generations, mm-hmm. and, and that seems to be in part because they, they feel like I've accumulated a lot of knowledge and skills, and in part because that next generation is actually starting to gain influence, and you get really worried about them. Oh, uh, okay. Um,
0: now, this is, let, me, let me pick up on something else here. It's, it, it's a phrase. I don't know whether you—I've always, always found it peculiar, the phrase giving back, because giving back suggests that you've taken something. And so you know, so so when people say I want to give back, what is that? What is that? Is that different in any qualitative sense from saying
1: I want to give? I want to do something right for the world. You know, it's it's interesting. I think it is. I, I actually yeah. I, I've never really thought about it, but intuitively. Well, we think, don't. This is, then you're. This is perfect for that show. Good. So this is, that's perfect for this show. So I guess you know, as you say it, I, when people talk about giving back, and I guess this is what my students brought up when when I initially was thinking about writing about this topic. I encode that as matching. like they have they have this cosmic yeah. sense of you know, like i've I've taken on some debt and now I need to repay it. And I'm probably not going to pay back the same person who helped me because it's it's not always that easy to give directly back to your mentor. And so I'm going to pay it forward. And therefore, I'm erasing my debt, and like there's a there's a cosmic zero balance. And I I don't think that has the same meaning or the same moral weight Mm. as saying, I really want to give because I care about helping others and I really want to make a difference. Right, right. But does – if someone were to read this book and say, oh,
0: wait a second, givers are the ones who succeed, therefore – i 'm going to be a giver does that under undermine that moral weight does that does that weaken the moral weight that you're talking about yeah if you
1: if you do it with the goal of succeeding, it probably doesn't work its just it's just a it's a a matcher in sheep's clothing very much so and it, it feels transactional right people mm-hmm. can see through that it's like you didn't really care about me, you just helped me so you could get something back and
0: mm-hmm.
1: this basket of ideas, which is you know we've been out for about a
0: year um really really taken hold i mean there's just a lot of people using this language, I think people really reckoning with it in their own lives um What kind of pushback have you gotten, uh, if any, from people saying, "Ah, you know, it's really actually life is kind of transactional. And what you're talking about here is less generosity than a kind of enlightened self-interest and sort of a slightly more sophisticated form
1: of matching. Yeah, so that, that's actually been one of the, the most frequent uh-huh. criticisms is, you know, there's sort of a blurry line between giving and matching. Right. And a lot of a lot of givers will believe that that's part of the reason they succeed. So are they really givers? I would say, though, that there's a big difference between adopting this as a philosophy that you believe is good for long run success, mm-hmm. but helping people without expecting anything back from any of them. And going into specific interactions and saying, I will help you I with the goal of quid pro quo or reciprocity. I see. So for me, a giver is somebody who helps others without strings attached. Right. But it's not a problem to say, and if I accumulate more of those acts of helping, that it's probably not going to hurt my reputation and relationships. Right. Right. Uh, and in fact if if you didn't believe that you you would be a really stupid giver <laughs> because you you're, right. you're not realizing that, right. that in fact people value what you right. contribute. But you're saying there's a difference
0: between going into a specific interaction. So if Fred comes to ask you for a favor and you say, "Yeah, I think I'll give Fred a favor because 6 months from now I can ask him a favor."
1: Exactly. That that's matching. Right. And givers are much more likely to extend their help to people that they don't expect to be able to reciprocate. Right. One of the
0: things that I remember from from reading this from reading this book is that um um, at some level, giving is, the way, especially the way you're describing it here, is less of a cognitive load. You know, with matchers, there's a ledger book in their heads
1: all the time. I mean, is that part of the virtues of being a giver? It might be. You know, I've, I've never studied this, but it does seem to be exhausting to keep score of every single exchange that you have. Yeah. And I think that as you go further and further to that, to that extreme, it may drain you more. Mm-hmm. And I can imagine that, you know, givers are are able to conserve some of those cognitive resources. But you don't want to push that too far in the other direction because givers who are unwilling to match with takers are in big trouble.
0: Givers who are unwilling to match with takers. Okay, tell me what you mean by that.
1: So if if you're dealing with somebody who you know to be a taker or you've been warned about in a pretty serious way, then you probably don't want to help that person with no strings attached unless it's very low cost Do you want to help that person at all? I think it depends on yeah. on on what it costs you as well as yeah. You know, it's,
0: it's an interesting problem because I mean I think people I think people do that. I'm trying to let, let's come up with a name. So let's say you have um, Kate um, uh, and Kate or uh, Rebecca. Let's call Rebecca Rebecca because I have a friend named Kate. I don't want her to think it's it's her. Let's say Rebecca um, and you know that Rebecca is a taker, but you Rebecca actually asks you for something and. You can get something in return from Rebecca. How do you? What's what's the what's your advice on how to proceed?
1: Well, I think the the starting point is is to ask how widespread is her taking? Right? Mm-hmm. Is, is has she fallen into a pattern of taking in this relationship with you, or does she treat everybody that way? Right. Um, I think the second question is: do, do you have a unique ability to help her in a way that's more valuable to her than it is costly to you? Okay. And then the the last part of it would be do you want to give her some kind of test? So instead of just mm. asking for something back, like mm. a traditional matcher, mm. ask her to help somebody else and see if she does it. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Um, so that that leads into the question, which is, let's say that we're, you know, we we understand that giving is the probably the best thing to do as a moral proposition and probably as a way to navigate your life successfully in the you know broader sense, um, are those some of the things you can do to avoid being thrust to that bottom end of the spectrum so so you write about you you say how, you know you talk about how do you become a giver without being a doormat? Give us some advice on
1: that well, I think you you basically want to be more thoughtful and selective about who, how, and when you help mm-hmm. so the the who we've talked about right you want to be cautious with takers right. and more generous with givers and matchers right the how i think is is probably the most counterintuitive part of mm. this. Um, failed givers tend to be generalists, jacks of all trades. So whatever kind of requests you come in with, I will try to help you out. Uh-huh. What I've consistently noticed about successful givers is that they're much more likely to be specialists. Interesting. So they say there's, there's one or two ways of helping that I enjoy yeah. and excel at, and I'm yeah. just going to focus on that. Yeah. Um, Adam Rifkin, who I read about in the book, uh, has a great example of this. Uh, so he's the, the Silicon Valley entrepreneur right. who uh, got his first company funded for $50 million U.S. million and started a couple others and is exceedingly generous. So Adam used to get bothered for a lot of business plan advice. Uh, People knew he was a great entrepreneur and that he was helpful. So they would uh, send him emails like, here's my 280-page business plan. Please read it and then meet with me for two and a half hours and tell me how to fix my business. Adam does not like reading your business plan. Mm -hmm. Uh, He loves people and technology. He's not passionate about the nitty-gritty of business. And so one day he decides that he's going to focus on a form of giving that he does love, which is making introductions, connecting people. So he decides that he's going to make three introductions every day. And he's done that for the last twelve years, every single morning, uh, which I, I think is staggering. So three introductions a day,
0: uh, we'll call that a thousand introductions a year. So twelve thousand introductions, at
1: least. Uh, I, w- I would expect more because he also does this spontaneously when it's right. not part of his three-day a plan. Right. Uh, but for for Adam, it's great because it, it falls in the category that he calls a five-minute favor. Right. You know, it's it's high valued other people, very low cost to him, mm-hmm. and so he can make a few introductions. And then move on with his day and get his own work done. Mm-hmm. What's, uh, there are two other, I think, great virtues.
0: How does he decide to do that?
1: I mean, at some level, it's a little
0: bit in, you know, every once in a while, I get annoyed if someone says, basically without asking my permission, um, Dan, meet Hector. Hector, meet Dan. I think you guys would enjoy knowing each other. I'll check out from here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, the, I really like the fact that uh, venture capitalists have started talking about the double opt-in introduction. The double what? Double opt-in. Oh, double opt-in. Got it. So uh-huh. I'm going to check with both people to make sure that they're interested in making the connection. Uh, you know, I think there, there's probably some, there, there might be some times where that's not necessary. Like mm. you have somebody that you've done 14 favors for. Right. It's probably reasonable then to, to just introduce that someone to someone else they can help. But, um, but you know, Adam will often check in and say, Do, are you two interested in being introduced first? And then, if if they are, there's even more buy-in, and it's a more effective introduction. Mm-hmm. If they're not, he's he's not taking with the intent of giving. Exactly, that's
0: fantastic. So, so this idea of the five-minute favor is is a really fascinating one. What are some other examples
1: of that? So, other examples, um, actually, recognizing givers is one of the best ones. Meaning? So the the people in in your organization or in your life who are the most generous often get stuck in the shadows. And they're not going to go out of their way to self-promote all the ways they're contributing to others. Mm. So if you can write a, a thank you note to their boss, ah, uh, if you can uh-huh. you know, make sure that their reputation for you know, going above and beyond the call of duty is well known, uh, right. again, very small cost of time for you, but right. could be very meaningful to them.
0: Right, right. It's a sort of it's the um, um, it's the citizen engagement squad of the Karma police. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> they, they, you know, they're, they're the ones who are out in the neighborhood talking to people. They're, they don't have a billy club or anything like that. They're, 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 they have that role in the policing of all of this.
1: That's exactly right. Uh, another one is sharing somebody else's work or ideas on social media. Right, a, a quick tweet or Facebook post or LinkedIn post is a really nice way to draw attention to work that you believe in that someone else right. is doing. But very, very efficient. Right. So right. let's take this back to Adam for a second. Yeah. Um, we were, when we were thinking about this idea of being specialists, uh, one of the things he found was as he started making introductions, mm-hmm. people stopped asking him for business plan advice because he actually he became known as Fortune's best networker and, mm-hmm. and had a, just an extraordinary group of people in, in his world. And why would you go to Adam for business plan advice? You could ask lots of people for that when the most valuable resource he can offer you is an introduction. Mm-hmm. So by specializing in introductions, he actually gets to dictate the kinds of requests that come to him. Interesting. And sort of crowd out the
0: other stuff that he didn't like doing. Right, right, right. So it's sort of the core competency theory of, of, of giving. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think that the ancillary effect of that, of basically it, it shapes what requests come in is actually really, that's actually helpful to me because I get, I don't get a huge number of requests, but I get requests and sometimes they're all over the place. And I generally want to help, but there's some things I do better than others. And there's some things I enjoy doing better than others, more than others. And the better known that is, the more likely people are to come to you for what you like to give. Right. So for those listeners out there, restaurant recommendations. Um, I don't want to read your book proposal though. Um, So... Let's talk a little bit about, pull back a little bit, talk about you. We're talking with Adam Grant. He's the author of Give and Take, Wharton professor, superstar uh, social scientist, and business school professor. How did you come to study social
1: psychology? How did, how did you end up in this field? So the, I guess the place it started was um, my dad and my mom had both been psychology majors. Oh, huh I didn't know that until after I chose it. Interesting. Um, so what would your mom and dad do for a living? So my dad's a lawyer. My mom is a teacher. Uh-huh. And um, I just thought that... And you, know, you grew f- up in? In, uh, in southeastern Michigan. Not, uh, not, not far from other great cities in the Midwest. But <laughs> uh, basically, um, I, I thought that phrases like self-fulfilling prophecy uh-huh. uh, were just in the lexicon. Ah. And I, I didn't know that like, my parents had, had just sort of picked up these insights about human behavior from some systematic study. Okay. So it was, it was always in the background. And um, I guess I got really interested in psychology when, um, when I was uh, an athlete. I was a, a springboard diver, and I had to hurl myself off of, of platforms to hit the water at very, very high speeds. Now, platform diving. So I did mostly springboard, but as, uh, I, uh, as I accelerated my career, I got sent up to the 10-meter platform. Yikes! It was terrifying. Uh-huh.
0: Now, how old were you when you started doing this? Uh, when I started, I was, I was 14. Uh-huh. And what... Compelled you to do diving at age 14?
1: So I was addicted to video games uh, mm-hmm. that summer, uh, right before high school, and my mother was tired of me sitting inside all day. Okay. And one day she dragged me to a pool uh-huh. and, and pushed you and off the 10 meter platform. I wish. <laughs> now, uh, there was a lifeguard on break uh, uh-huh. who happened to be uh, like a state finalist diver, and uh-huh. he did a bunch of dives. I'd never seen it up close. I just thought it was fascinating. I said, I want to learn how to do that. Really? So it was really in that. In that moment. Total serendipity. Uh-huh. I love it. But I didn't, it turned out, uh, want to do that because like, I would have all these horrible crash landings and this feeling of being completely lost in the air was, was just uh, probably even more frightening than the pain itself. And yet, I had to overcome all of those fears to try to push myself to, to do new dives and, and know that I was going to crash and get lost. Right. And that was all about psychology. And so I, um, I transitioned from diving to coaching. And then I had to motivate other divers so you, to do that. So
0: you dove
1: in high school. I dove in high school and then I dove in college. Uh-huh. And, and when I retired, I uh, moved into coaching. And when did you retire from diving? I retired actually after my freshman year uh-huh. uh, of college when I realized uh, I could no longer uh, compete with people who were more talented than I was by working harder than them.
0: Oh, okay. So we haven't. I think we've mentioned this book on the show, "The Sports Gene." <laughs> you didn't have the innate diving gene, but you were able to, which is actually I think takes a huge amount of courage. I mean, it's not like playing tennis or anything like that. I mean, you are, as you say, throwing yourself in midair, contorting your body, and then crashing into this painful, spiky pond of
1: water. Yeah. And I think people actually overestimate how much talent that does require at a basic level. I remember um, I had a phenomenal diving coach, Eric Best, who's, who's one of my first role models as a giver. Uh-huh. And on the first day of practice uh, as a freshman, when I was trying out, he said, Do you want the good news or the bad news? And I said, start with the bad news. He said, well, basically, diving requires flexibility, explosive power, and grace. And you can't touch your toes. You can't jump. And you, you basically look like Frankenstein walking down the diving board. Mm-hmm. He said, but the good news. I'm like, there's good news. <laughs> he said, diving is a nerd sport. And it attracts all the people who are you know, too slow for track and too weak for football. And uh, so I have this philosophy. I will never cut anyone if you want to come to practice. Wow! And so he, he brought me onto the team. <laughs>
0: That's fantastic. Okay, so, so this is giving you, uh, so your, your experience as an athlete is giving you an insight into um, psychology. And so you're in college, you're undergraduate at, at Harvard. And did you come in to college saying, you know, I want to study social science or I want to study humanities? Or you just said, I just want to, I don't know, I'm 18, I don't know what I'm doing.
1: It was definitely yeah. the latter. Um, and when I was asked like what majors I was interested in, I wrote down psychology and physics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I guess uh, they started with P yeah and because <laughs> yeah. they were both about understanding the world okay uh, but I, I quickly realized that uh, the kinds of things that I was interested in doing were going to make more use of psychology than physics right. and that the social world I thought was actually responsible for more problems than the physical world right okay so uh, I, I chose psychology and then uh, after taking a couple of psychology classes one of the professors invited me to join a research lab and oh I oh. didn't even know what research was right I thought professors were, were teachers and I found out, no, there's this whole other side of it. And I love the research and uh, wanted to try to make it practical. Uh, great. And,
0: so, and then you ended up actually obviously graduating from college and then going to get a degree in organizational psychology. So you there, was, got it. there was something about organ- like psychology in the realm of organizations that was appealing to you?
1: Yeah, so, um, so when I started in social psychology, we were doing a lot of research uh, in the lab, and undergrads would come in, we would subject them to experiments. And I thought the results were interesting, but it bothered me that the people who participated in our studies didn't benefit from them, other ah, than getting paid. Uh-huh. And that the knowledge was then supposed to somehow go from collecting dust in a journal and hoping that like, my mother would read it, uh-huh. maybe, <laughs> to then you know, like benefiting other people. And... Um, I was uh, around the same time I was working as a, a manager at an, an advertising and publishing organization. Mm-hmm. And I found myself, although I was supposed to be like managing a budget, I spent mm. all my time thinking about how do I hire the right people, how do I motivate my staff. Interesting. And I saw all the applications of social and personality psychology to work. Got and it. And I said, "That's it. That's what Got I want to study." It.
0: Got it. Got it. That's fascinating. Um, the the it, what I find impressive is on on both the stories is sort of the degree of openness to possibility, the degree of openness to experience. I'll give you something else. I'll give you an example. I was at a graduation not too long ago, and and the the dean asked these graduating students. Um, stand up if what, you decide, what you're graduating in, the major you're graduating in, is the major you started in. And over half the students stood up. I was shocked by that. And so to me, I mean, there might be something about the directness of that, 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 that that's appealing, I think, in some cases, but it also suggests not quite enough openness. So you came in and sort of were open to experience in, your, in college, and that took you down a path that is interesting and fulfilling and valuable to the world.
1: It's, it's interesting. Uh, I, we're both fans of Angela Duckworth's work on grit. But I think that, that graduation story you gave is, is an example of sort of the dark side of grit. Um, which, uh, which psychologists like to call escalation of commitment to a losing course there of you action. Right. Uh, right. Where you, you basically, you get into something and you're like, all right, I started this, I've got to right. finish it. I have all right. these sunk costs and I don't want to look right. like I made a bad choice. And I think that, that far too many people get stuck in those traps, right. as opposed to saying early on, I'm going to try something out and see if it's a good fit before I put all my eggs in that basket. Right, right. If there's one, there, there are many principles
0: of social science that I wish people had a better understanding of in navigating their own lives. Sunk costs is one of them. I find people have a very hard time getting their mind around that.
1: They do. And I think what's interesting about that is this is something that, that economists pick up and say, if we could just get people to let go of sunk costs, uh-huh. uh, we would have better decisions. The, the new research on, on escalation of commitment, though, actually says that um, ego and image factors are more important. So More important than? Than, uh, than sunk costs in leading us down the road of, of escalating bad decisions. So, tell me what you mean by that. So, imagine, so take somebody who, who started out in, in college and chose a major, uh, right. let's say pre-med, right. and then discovers after a year, this is just not for me. Right. Well, I've already put in a year. That's uh-huh. the sunk cost part. Right. And so I've got to you know, validate this decision. Right. Right. Um, what actually has more weight in causing me to continue down that pre-med path if I'm that student is I don't want to admit to myself that I made a bad choice. And I don't want my parents and my friends to know that I screwed this up. Oh, so how do you disentangle those two? Well, there, there are a lot of different ways to yeah. disentangle it. But in some of the experiments, what happens is um, you basically eliminate this on costs. Uh-huh. And you also vary whether people will know about your decision and whether it's going to reflect okay. on you. Okay. All right. And, um, and those factors turn out to, to loom larger, basically, in people's minds. Right. 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 So it's really the
0: perceived kind of internal and external reputational damage that are perceived that, that holds people back. Exactly.
1: I, I don't want to be a quitter. I don't want to be a bad decision maker. Yeah. I want to follow through. Yeah. Wow. Um, the Dark Side of Grit. That's actually a good
0: sequel book. So uh, I want to pick up on something else here. We're talking about your experience as a diver. Uh, Took out look at your, your Twitter biography. Yes. The, our crack research team has found your Twitter biography. Wharton Professor, we know about that. Author of Give and Take. That's the book we've been talking about. Awesome book. We've talked about that. Dad, dad of... Three kids. Three kids. Um, former springboard diver. But also it says Magician.
1: That's all about psychology, isn't it? It is. I didn't know that at the time, either, but I was a pretty shy kid, and uh, I had some neighbors that I babysat for, who were pretty wild, mm-hmm. and one week they got into magic tricks, and I noticed they sat still. Ah, so I went home and learned some tricks, and they continued paying attention. And then I ended up bringing them to school and noticing it was a way for me to come out of my shell and, and kind of connect with people a little bit. And, so and how that, old were you at that time? I was 12 when I started. Interesting. And so what kind of, you, you know, like card tricks or card tricks were my specialty. Cutting people in half? Oh, okay. I did, um, actually when I was 12, I did my final project in 7th grade on, uh, on magic. Uh, so I spent like a month studying magicians and my dad helped me build a saw in half table where like the, the conclusion of the project was to get sawed in half in front of my class. huh. Oh, nice. But uh, I, I never liked stage illusions as much as sort of like close-up sleight of hand because uh-huh. I thought it required more skill and it was uh, it was when you found out the secret it was more impressive as opposed to less impressive. For the slight to the up close. Yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But so much of that is about about the psychology of attention. Um, I find a lot of interesting people were magicians as kids. Also a lot of that? a lot of very creepy people. Uh, <laughs> no, those are the ones who stay magicians as adults. <laughs> uh, um, for, for 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 you yeah for for you listeners out there there's a there's a classic Washington Post magazine article about a, a fellow here in Washington um, called I think his name is the Great Zucchini who basically spends his days doing magic tricks for kids birthday parties it's not a happy story anagram aficionado is also in
1: your biography what's that about. Um, I, I love word games. Uh, so, I've, like, I grew up playing Boggle. Uh, my, my sister's a very serious Scrabble player. And uh, in college, I stayed up many late nights uh, playing a game called Anagrams, where you, um, you take Scrabble tiles and you try to build words. And then every time you build a word, you can add a letter and steal it if you can rearrange it into another word. Great fun. That's, it sounds like it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, and then aspiring superhero, but also, say, but only a super taster. For real? For real. Are you serious? You're a super taster.
1: I am. What it's, is that like? It's not
0: as super as it sounds. No, uh, tell me what you mean by that. Tell, I mean, that, that's really interesting.
1: So uh, I was, when I was in grad school, I was at uh, dinner at a friend's uh, who had been a physician and uh, had now transitioned into to the organizational field. And uh, I didn't eat anything she cooked. And instead of being offended, she said, well, you must be a super taster. I was like, a super what? I had a chance to find out a couple weeks later because I went to a psychology conference and it turned out the keynote address was by a psychologist who spent her career studying super tasters. So I got to sit in this audience and take a test. What they do is uh, they have you lick a piece of paper. Okay. And uh, then the question is basically, do you taste anything? And okay. m- most people can't taste a thing. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, I am bolting to the back of the room in an audience of like 500 people to get like a giant cup of water because it's the most foul taste I- I've ever encountered. And it turns out that, that w- those of us who are super tasters, we have like a, a, a disproportionate number of taste buds on our tongues. Okay. And that uh, makes us really sensitive to um, foods that other people like. But I cannot stand eating chocolate um, or like the smell of coffee makes me sick. Really? Uh, so like this class of bitter foods is just overwhelming. Uh-huh. And so what does that mean? That
0: So how does that, how does that affect what you eat?
1: Uh, I, mean, I, I eat like
0: a five-year-old, basically. So like...
1: Uh, You take chicken nuggets and throw them on the floor? Uh, I wish, (laughs) if I could get away with it. Uh, Cheese pizza, spaghetti, like very plain, basic foods. Interesting.
0: Very interesting. And, and that's all, that's a complete genetic phenomenon. Do you have relatives who?
1: My grandmother actually also hated chocolate. We think she was a super taster. Uh-huh. Um, I have other family members who also have some peculiar tastes, so we, we think there is a genetic component of it. There's got to there's gotta be. It's, it's not like one can learn to be a super taster. Can one? I don't know. Can you get extra taste buds installed?
0: <laughs> yeah. I, it's all, so it's all about taste buds, which has got to be what your, your genes are saying. Your, 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 your DNA is saying, hey, let's make some extra taste buds for this guy. Apparently. Um, um, you would think that would be a good thing, but I guess it's, it's really not. Um, so do you, what about like, um, this is another question I wanted to ask you, because you are one of the singularly most prolific people I know. The amount of stuff you get done is both breathtaking and irritating. And I was wondering, I actually had a question here. You can see it on my, on my comprehensive notes from our crack research team. Is um, I, I was curious about whether you use caffeine. Never. Never. Because you can't be, coffee's probably overwhelming for you.
1: It is. Uh both uh, like I I've never literally never had a sip of coffee. Uh, wow. The, the smell just is disgusting. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh but also um you, you probably know the the introvert extrovert differences here. Uh as a, a pretty sociable but still introverted person. Yeah. Um it turns out that that actually coffee uh is helpful to extroverts but not helpful at all to introverts because it's a stimulant and it tends to overstimulate us basically. Uh-huh. I wonder. If, I wonder if there's a.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's a connection between super tasting and introversion and extroversion. Because if you think about introversion and extroversion as the amount of stimulus you can handle, super taste would be.
1: Wait a second. I'm overstimulated here. I love that idea. I'm going to have to ask Linda Bartoshuk about that. I guess the the question that it raises is um, is who is, the, is like, Linda Bartoshuk? She's the the super oh, okay. researcher uh-huh. who who did this test. But uh, basically, she—I um, think she would say that sensitivity to stimulation on taste might be different from like bright lights and loud sounds loud, and yeah. social attention. Interesting. That's fascinating. Um, what about alcohol? Do
0: you—is you, alcohol overwhelming to you? I don't know. I've never tried it. You've never had a sip of alcohol or something. No, of I also can't stand the smell. Yeah, I can. Because well, I'm just thinking about things that are particularly kind of um, pungent. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, I would say that. Two thirds of my diet is caffeine and alcohol,
1: <laughs> often <laughs> delivered
0: in the same dose. Um, that is that is quite uh, that's quite amazing. So let's go back to your so your so your your prolificness, your incredible output is obviously not fueled by at least food. Um, so t- to give us a sense, uh, we're gonna have a few more questions here as we wrap up. Give us a sense of kind of your work style.
1: What, what's a tip- Is there a typical day for you? Um, it, it depends. So, like, I have a typical teaching day, mm-hmm. I have a typical writing day. Okay. Um, take
0: us through Take us through a typical teaching day and then a typical writing day.
1: So, a typical teaching day, uh, I would, like, i wake up in the morning, uh, we'll have, like, some, you know, like, family breakfast, we get our kids off to school, mm-hmm. and then I'll go in the morning, teach a class. So, have, what do you have for
0: breakfast? Like, just
1: Cheerios and milk? Uh, almost every day, it's either Cheerios or Frosted Mini Wheats. Uh-huh. Uh, good guess. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll go in and uh, teach a class, and then uh, have like four hours of office hours, uh, talking to students about applying course concepts to their lives, mm-hmm. career decisions, and then uh, four hours of office hours. That's, that seems like a lot. I try. I try to follow one of the practices that uh, that I wrote about around chunking your time rather yeah. than than spreading it a, sort mm-hmm. of too thin. Uh, so when it, when I'm in helping mode, I'm trying to just focus on that. Got it. And then I don't answer my phone or emails on on writing days, uh, which we'll get to, but. Um after about four or so, hours, so office hours, I'll, I'll come home. Uh, basically, afternoon and evening is family time. And then uh, after our kids go to bed, that's usually when I catch up on email and uh, find other excuses to uh, not make progress on the things that I should be doing. <laughs> um, and then what's a writing day for you like? So writing day is usually uh, I'll get up in the morning and uh, actually start writing as soon as possible. Uh, I find that, um, I guess, being somewhat more introverted, uh, I, I'm more likely to be overstimulated late. Uh, in the evening, whereas in the morning, like, I wake up sort of fresh. Interesting. I also usually wake up with a few ideas. Uh, so I'll, I'll usually try to start as early as I can in the morning, and I'll, I'll often write for, like, four or five hours, and uh, then I'll move on to, to other tasks. Right, right. Is there a difference
0: between... In, 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 does introversion and extroversion correlate with sort of the, the, the larks and the night owls?
1: I, you know, I, I don't know what the latest well, evidence says about that.
0: You said you feel overstimulated at night.
1: I do. I, I know um, P- Peter Totterdell and his colleagues uh, in the UK have some interesting research on circadian rhythms uh-huh. that I think tracks with this to some extent. Uh-huh. And uh, I, re- I remember having a conversation with Peter where he said basically, like, yes, you should be a morning person as an introvert. Uh, I don't know how strong that correspondence is. and It's not an area of research I've read very carefully yet. But um, I think that it just it intuitively makes sense to me that, you know, as, as the day goes on, my ability to do cr- creative thought sort of tends to wane unless I've had sort of an unusual day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's interesting, too. Now, you've also done we're going to wrap up here in a moment, though, but you've also done some pretty interesting research on introversion, and extroversion. One, one thing that I think our listeners might be really interested in is is introverted and, and introversion, and extroversion as it relates to leadership. Tell us a little bit about what
1: you found there. So I remember, uh, this must have been about eight years ago, uh, uh, an aspiring journalist named Susan Kane walked into my <laughs> office when I was a graduate student, uh-huh. and she said she was thinking about writing a book on introversion. And uh, a, a mentor of mine had connected us and said, uh, you know, Adam studies psychology and work. He might have some insights. And she asked me, what do we know about introverts and in leadership? And I, I looked at the evidence, and I said, not a whole lot, because all these studies show that extroverts are more likely to be chosen as leaders. Mm-hmm. And they're also more uh, more likely to be rated as effective as leaders. Mm -hmm. I could not find any compelling evidence about whether extroverts really made good leaders. Interesting. Uh, So we know they want to lead. We know people think they're good leaders, but are they? And uh, Susan ended up writing ended up writing Quiet, obviously. Mm -hmm. And uh,
0: oh, and Office Hours, another Office Hours guest.
1: So uh, with that, uh, it was it was a great opportunity to say, well, can we gather some data about the real effects? Uh, And I never would have done that had I not sat down with Susan and had that conversation. So uh, with uh, Francesca Gino and Dave Hoffman, two wonderful colleagues, uh, we gathered some data. Uh, as you know, one of the, the studies was in uh, a national pizza chain. So think Domino's, except not Domino's. Okay. And uh, we had store leaders who were in charge of, of each of the stores rate themselves on an introvert to extrovert spectrum. Okay. And then we tracked store profits. Uh-huh. And we found that on average, there was no difference between introverts and extroverts. Mm-hmm. But if you broke down the stores by the kinds of employees they had if you had really passive employees mm-hmm. uh, who were basically looking for direction from above, the right. extroverts led more profitable stores. Right. Uh, they were the ones really exhorting their employees to put in a lot of energy and to work hard. But if you had the most valuable employees, proactive people, who take initiative, who bring ideas and suggestions, introverted leaders actually get, got better results. Right, um, Introverts are more likely to listen to suggestions, and that gives them access to better ideas. They also left their proactive employees feel, feeling valued and validated as opposed to sort of extroverts saying, well, stop stealing the spotlight from me. Go away I with see. your ideas. I see. I see. So if you
0: have um, proactive employees, then generally introverted leaders are likely to be better. If you have less proactive, more folks who require greater direction than extroverted leaders.
1: That's what our data
0: suggests. Yeah, fascinating. Um, you also wrote um, recently for LinkedIn some advice about email. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I thought it was, I thought it was
1: terrific. I, 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 I emailed it to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry for all of the people who are in your email inbox. Um, I, uh, you know I, I guess uh, when give and take came out, uh, it, it sort of it changed the kinds of emails that I got mm-hmm. um, when the The New York Times wrote this piece, uh, a bunch of people read about my work, and I think they quoted my wife as saying, "I, I can't say no or uh-huh. something to that effect, right so it was like a, it was like a, a neon sign to takers saying, "Contact this person." right and I got about four thousand emails in three weeks from people wanting various things right There's a certain irony to that of like you read this article about how giving can be a great strategy for, uh, for having meaningful work. And then instead of going and helping other people, you try to get stuff from the person who yes, wrote about giving. Yes, I thought that was interesting. But I, of course, I wanted to try to help as much as I could. Right. I noticed that a lot of the emails uh, were not the kinds of emails that I was excited to respond to, though. And it was amazing how many people would, would ask me things like, can you introduce me to the millionaires in your network? Assuming, first of all, that I know millionaires. Right. And second of all, that I, I was in a position to make that introduction. Right. Uh, I was also stunned and then, by— Well,
0: you don't have your contact manager t- people tagged by net worth? Clearly
1: not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should, <laughs> uh, for these people. But yeah. there were also just—there um, were a lot of emails that came in that were, uh, were just less grateful and polite than I would have expected. Right. And so it's, at some point I thought, okay, it would be fun to, to write down just the very basic rules that I would love for more people to follow. Give us a couple of them. Well, I think, uh, I think one of the most basic ones is don't ask strangers for feedback, Interesting. Uh, so, Dan, when people email you asking to read their book proposal, how many book proposals do you have in a given week? I, I don't even want to know. How many, how many, will, <laughs> I, will people how many are people asking you to, to well, read? Well, you know
0: what? I had a, Actually, I have on my, on my, on my website uh, contact information. It says, I will not help you find a job or read your book proposal. So I'm hoping that. But I still get, um, I don't know, not, not that many now, maybe three or four or five a week.
1: I mean, that's a massive yeah. request, right, in terms yeah. of the amount of time it'll take, yeah. let alone the, the number of other things right. you have on right. your plate. So I think it's, you know, it's much more polite to ask for something that you might be willing to do as a five-minute favor, like, would you be willing to take a look at my book when it's done and consider endorsing it? Right. Um, you know, by, by contrast, right? It's a right. much more respectful ask exactly. of your time. And it's probably exactly. also going to be more helpful because, you know, I think your, your name on a book is going to be more distinctive than, you know, if you actually sat down and edited. A lot of people could do that. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, although a name on a book, I don't think is that. That's a <laughs>
0: conversation altogether. It but, is. Um, um, uh, um, okay, so so you so let's say that. So so what? Give us another couple of nuggets of advice for sending emails. What should we not do, or what should we do?
1: So another thing that uh, that I would recommend avoiding, based at least based on my own reaction, is I think it's uh, it's it's probably not a great idea to reach out to people and ask them to just share your stuff on social media. Um, I, I know you get a ton of these requests. I do, too. You know, People say, I wrote this article. Please share it. It's mm-hmm. a really awkward request. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, uh, I, you don't know if I'm going to like it. Mm-hmm. And number two, you also don't know if it's the kind of thing that I feel comfortable putting my name behind in public. Exactly. And you've, you end up putting somebody in a really awkward position. So mm-hmm. it's much better to just send this article and say, you know, hope you enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And then if the person does decide to share it, they're going to do it based on a lot more intrinsic motivation because they actually felt like they wanted to do it. Exactly. As opposed to saying, all right, I've got to do this obligation for right. this matcher
0: here. Right, right, right. I get a lot of those. Those drive me nuts. Those drive me nuts. Um, what's another piece of advice for on, the, on the sending side?
1: I think another thing on the sending side is um, it's a good idea to tell people why you chose them. So it's amazing how many emails would just say, hey, you know, can you – I've gotten emails from people who want me to fight their medical malpractice lawsuits. You're a lawyer. I'm not. (laughs) And I I don't have any expertise to offer there. And if you had had a sentence about, well, gee, you know, hey, I I was contacting you knowing this was not your expertise and I did my homework – but I wondered if you happen to have someone in your network who knows anything about medical malpractice. A little better. I'd be much more likely to, yeah. to at least give that a shot.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite is when people say, uh, Dear Mr. Pink, I haven't bought or read any of your books, but I have these nine questions I'd like for you to answer. That is, don't do that, folks. Um, Adam, what, um, what are you working on now? What am I working on now? I guess yeah. you know, what, You're always working on something cool. What are you working on now?
1: Now, one, one of the big questions I felt like I haven't been able to answer is, what do you do if you're in an organization where your boss is a taker or you've got a big culture of takers? And you know, I think my first reaction is just to say, quit. Yeah. Quit now. Leave. Yeah. Go yeah. somewhere else yeah. if you can. But uh, I think there's actually a lot that we could learn about how to change a culture from taking to giving mm. and how to deal with takers, especially if they're above you in the hierarchy. Interesting. And that's
0: something I'm really excited to study. Cool, cool. Um, great. And, and anything else that uh, you're, you're reading or watching or listening to that's catching your
1: eyes that you think our listeners might be interested in? So um, two, two newer books that I'm very excited yeah. about. Uh, one is Super Survivors um, by uh, David Feldman and Leah Daniel Kravitz. Um, they look at basically when you face adversity, instead of just crumbling or bouncing back, what does it take to bounce forward? Oh. And come out of Crisis and Tragedy better than you were before. That's great. That's called Super Survivors. Super Survivors. That sounds great. Love that book. Uh-huh. And then on uh, the fiction side, uh, there's an incredible book uh, out from Penguin called Everything I Never Told You by Celeste Ng. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's just, it's masterful writing. So we got nonfiction,
0: fiction. That is our five-minute favor book recommendation here on Office Hours. Um We've been talking with Adam Grant. He's a Wharton professor, superstar social scientist, and author of Give and Take, one of the best books I've read in the last several years, a book that has really reshaped the kind of conversations that I have with people. So Adam Grant, Give and Take, out in paperback at all reputable bookstores and booksellers, online and offline. That's it for Office Hours. Uh, If you've missed an episode of the show... You ought to be ashamed of yourself, but you can listen to previous episodes on iTunes or on DanPink.com. Until our next show, I'm Daniel Pink. Thanks for listening.